I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, March 20th, 2018. Coming up, Steven Pinker, a cognitive scientist and linguist at Harvard University, will talk about his wide-reaching new book called Enlightenment Now, A Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. There is, I think, something that, that uh, to be praised about understanding how the world works rather than being stuck in, in superstition and ignorance. And, and I argue that this should be part of the aspirational statement of a university, that understanding what makes the world tick is inherently noble and worthy. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science, starting with this news from How on Earth's Tom Yulesman about climate change in the Arctic. The coldest reaches of the Arctic on land were once thought to be at least temporarily shielded from a major and worrisome effect of global warming, widespread melting of permafrost. But a recent study suggests these northernmost Arctic areas are likely to thaw much sooner than expected. That's concerning because melting permafrost releases climate-warming greenhouse gases. Overall, the new findings, coupled with previous research, suggest the Arctic has entered a new epoch, call it the Great Thawing, and this has implications for the entire planet. Permafrost is permanently frozen soil, sediment, and rock. Although it is found across just 15% of Earth's surface, it harbors about half of all the carbon found in soils. Scientists have long feared that a warming climate would cause release of substantial amounts of that carbon into the atmosphere in the form of carbon dioxide and methane. This would help accelerate global warming. The new study found that if our emissions of greenhouse gases continue unabated, permafrost in the coldest Arctic areas will experience widespread melting during this century, not centuries hence, as previously thought. As they do, they will become a net source of additional climate-altering carbon to the atmosphere. The study suggests that the transition will peak in the relatively short span of 40 to 60 years. As NASA scientist Nicholas Parizou, lead author of the study, puts it, we keep finding more surprises, and the scary word in all of this is irreversible. Once we thaw permafrost, it becomes very difficult to refreeze, Parizou says. Thanks to Tom Yulesman for that report. The study appeared in the journal The Cryosphere in January. Tom is director of the University of Colorado's Center for Environmental Journalism. A detailed story about the Arctic's melting permafrost can be found at his Discover Magazine blog, Imagio, which can be found at discovermagazine.com slash Imagio. In other news, you've probably heard about how using antibiotics can disrupt the beneficial bacteria in your gut and increase your risk of getting sick. And you know that antibiotics can foster superbugs. You probably also know that because of those potential risks, there's a worldwide push among health organizations to reduce the use of antibiotics. Now here's new news, and it's disquieting because it's not just occasional use of antibiotics that can disrupt the gut microbiome and increase antibiotic resistance. 25% of all drugs designed for human use inhibit growth of bacteria in the human gut. That's one in four of all drugs, whether they're antibiotics or mood stabilizers or medicines for heart conditions or you name it. In every therapeutic class of drugs, some of them change the gut microbiome. 
These news findings come from the scientists at the European Molecular Biology Laboratory, who have just published their research in the journal Nature. And, to add to the worrisome nature of their findings, the scientists report that even though many of these drugs are not antibiotics, 25% of them cause antibiotic-like side effects that might promote antibiotic resistance. This means they likely promote superbugs. Driving impaired means driving after drinking too much alcohol or smoking marijuana or doing hard drugs. Whatever the impairment, it's dangerous, and not only for the driver. Passengers are also at risk. Now, a new study from Colorado State University reveals that this risky behavior is more common than many people have assumed. In a survey of recent high school graduates, one-third reported that they rode with a driver who was impaired at least once in the last year. KSU's Kaingang Lee led the study. It shows that these recent high school grads are equal opportunity passengers when it comes to drivers either impaired by marijuana or drunk. They accept equal number of rides from both. Lee warns that young adults who ride with impaired drivers often become impaired drivers themselves. To prevent car accidents, he says, we need more programs that reach this population with the message that it's risky to ride with an impaired driver. Lee's study was published yesterday in the Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drug. You are listening to How on Earth, KGNU's Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. You may be among many who wistfully hearken back to the golden days of the past. And for some people, no doubt, the past does look rosier. Or at least the present looks grim. But according to Steven Pinker, a Harvard University cognitive psychologist, that golden age of the past is a reflection of faulty memory. We, most people in the world anyway, are actually far better off than we were decades and surely centuries ago. That's based on many metrics of progress, including literacy, safety, gender equality, lower poverty, and many more. Pinker presents in his new book an abundance of data as evidence of such progress. This progress, he argues, is rooted in the ideals of the Enlightenment some 250 years ago. Pinker's book is called Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science and Humanism and Progress. Last week on the Pledge Drive show, we played a couple of segments of an interview that How on Earth host Susan Moran and KGNU journalist Joel Edelstein conducted with Dr. Pinker. For those of you who called in to pledge your new or renewed membership, thank you very much for supporting How on Earth and KGNU. We'll now play that interview in full. So it's safe to say that much of your book seems to be an homage to and a defense of Enlightenment ideals, as you say, reason, science, humanism, and progress. So I'm curious, what makes these ideals so pressing right now in your mind, enough to prompt you to write this big book, expansive book? We're living in a time in which a lot of people know what they don't believe in. There are, are plenty of uh, opponents uh, to uh, nationalism, 
excuse me, to um, uh, authoritarian populism, to religious fundamentalism. But if you ask people, okay, well, what what is it that you you uh, uh, do believe? And a lot of people have trouble pointing to anything. Uh, even though there is much to celebrate and in our uh, intellectual tradition, and I identify that core as the values of the Enlightenment, the idea that we can use reason and sympathy to enhance human flourishing. And I wrote it not just because we need something to uh, point to for those of us who, who are not nationalists or, or, or reactionaries mm-hmm. uh, or communists, but also um, I, I argue that the Enlightenment has actually um, proven itself to have worked. We now have a lot of data on human well-being, what's happened in the last 200 years. And in measure after measure, humanity has become better off. So the Enlightenment ideal of improving the human condition was not just a utopian aspiration. We now know that, it's, that it worked. The, certainly uh, in the book, the metrics of progress that you cite uh, are undeniable. Uh, the audience, for those who um, haven't gotten to the book yet, um, give us some examples of metrics of, of progress brought about by Enlightenment values. The foremost has to be life itself and life expectancy at birth, which for most of human history was about 30 years, is now 80 years in the developed world and 71 years worldwide. Uh, A second measure, uh, extreme poverty, that is being able to um, afford more than the bare minimum necessary to feed your family. 200 years ago, you could really say that 90% 90% of humanity lived in extreme poverty. Even 30 years ago, it would be uh, more than a third. Uh, now it's fallen to less than 10% and, uh, and continues to fall. Uh, literacy. Uh, I think everyone would agree that it's better to be able to read and write than, than to be illiterate. And, uh, even in most of European history, maybe 10 to 15% of the population was uh, literate. Today, more than 80% of the world's population is literate, and more than 90% of the population below the age of 25 um, a peace, uh, the, uh, even though wars still take place, particularly the uh, horrific civil war in Syria, which is the worst war in a generation, the rate of uh, death in warfare and the number of wars has uh, come way down compared to earlier decades. The, with the signing of the Colombian peace agreement last year, the, the last war in the Western Hemisphere came to an end, so an entire hemisphere of the world is free from war. Uh, and uh, regions that w- had been consumed with uh, bloody warfare for decades, like Southeast Asia and, for that matter, Western Europe, are now uh, almost entirely at peace. Uh, safety, where we're, the United States homicide rate has fallen by more than half just since just the early 1990s, and it was even higher than that in earlier periods of history. We're less likely to be killed on the job, to be killed in a, in a, a car crash, a plane crash, a, an earthquake, a flood, a lightning strike, a tsunami, and, uh, and so on. Uh, leisure time, we have 20 hours more, um, we, we work 20 hours less than our ancestors, and um, have a, a, on top of that an additional um, uh, many dozens of hours a week saved by labor-saving devices compared to our grandparents. So these are, those are some examples. And they're certainly very powerful examples. Just how do uh, the values of the Enlightenment operate in the world to bring about this progress? 
largely um, the scientific know-how that has allowed us to uh, cure and sometimes eliminate diseases um, uh, um, and that have powered uh, technology that, that uh, allow us to live more comfortable and longer lives. Uh, but also institutions like democracy instead of uh, monarchy or totalitarian dictatorships, uh, regulated market economies that are create more wealth than um, top-down planned economies, whether they're uh, communist or, or royal charters, um, institutions of learning, schools, academies, a free press. So why is it that many people think things are much worse than they actually are, whether it's on the poverty, gender equality, race relations, crime? Is it this combination of our memory capacity? Is it social media barraging us with 24-7 news cycle, giving us a sense of things are just bad all the time, or what? Partly it is the nature of news, which is about things that happen, not things that don't happen. And so a country at peace is pretty boring. Uh, you know, <laughs> nothing's blowing up, uh, and, uh, no piles of rubble. And so they, they simply aren't, don't make the news. And as long as the number of wars hasn't fallen to zero, there'll always be uh, destruction that can uh, that fill the news. And if you don't take into account all the parts of the world that are at peace, you can end up with a misleading picture of the world, especially since we know that the human mind is driven by images and stereotypes and narratives, things that are easily available from memory. So there's that. There's also a, um, a kind of... Uh, journalistic and intellectual culture that makes it almost mandatory to be um, constantly indignant about uh, what's going wrong in society. Mm -hmm. uh, partly that, that can be a good thing in moderation because it, it is um, uh, noticing injustices and suffering that, that has led, led our ancestors to, to uh, reduce them and, and high, highly successfully. But uh, there is a danger in being too negative because then people can become cynical about the entire political process and all of our institutions. They can become either fatalistic, figuring why even bother to make the world a better place if it's just spiraling downward, or they can embrace radicals, people who say, well, we've got to just burn the empire to the ground because anything that would replace it has got to be better than the disaster we have now. Uh, and the, the, the thing is that we don't have a disaster now. We do have uh, many problems, but uh, we, we had worse problems in the past. You know, uh, I've been kind of reflecting on, on uh, what you were saying before about how uh, when people get together and transcend their tribal boundaries, then reason tends to, uh, to come in, into play. And um, actually, I, I wonder about um, instances where, well, for example, um, reason is not doing very much to get us to address um, global warming. And just about every place on the planet, except in the United States, global warming, uh, human cost, is accepted as that is the reality we face today. Uh, why is that not operative here? Uh, it, it's largely because it's become so intensely politicized here, so that it has become a... Um, uh, a, a sign of loyalty to a left-wing or a right-wing coalition to have one or the other opinion. Um, and uh, that has happened uh, in other countries, but not, not nearly as much as it has uh, here. 
um, and uh, indeed studies of people's climate literacy. So there's not, a, not much of a difference between the, the deniers and the acceptors, but what does predict uh, denial or acceptance is just how far to the left or how far to the right you are. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone is, uh, has an equal claim to, to, to uh, the truth. Uh, some people can be wrong, some people can be right, but unfortunately, when a belief becomes uh, a kind of identity badge of, of a tribe, that you're a member in good standing, then uh, people seek evidence that affirms their belief, they, they uh, figure out ingenious ways of discounting uh, contrary evidence, and uh, th- that's what we've seen uh, more so in the United States than elsewhere. If you just joined us, you are listening to How on Earth, KGNU's science show. I'm Joel Parker. You are listening to an interview of Harvard University cognitive psychologist Steven Pinker. Let's continue that interview by How on Earth host Susan Moran and KGNU journalist Joel Edelstein. It's hard not to think that we're in a pretty dark age now in politics, in science, and you say in the book, you call it the stupidification of science and this blatant disregard at best and dismissal of science, but outright attack on science, you know, whether it's evolution and climate change. And I know your book is not prescriptive, but what can be done, do you think, to overcome this blatant suppression of science and this attack on scientists themselves by this administration, in fact? Uh, indeed, although, as I point out in the book, a lot of the attacks on science uh, paradoxically come from the uh, academic left, the, the, the postmodernists, the deconstructionists. Say, say uh, more about that. It's not. Well, in a lot of, um, paradoxically, in a lot of um, university humanities departments, science is blamed for slavery and colonialism and genocide. It's considered to be just another set of myths. Of course, at any given period in history, scientists uh, have been complicit in their in their, their societies and, and uh, governments. So it's not to say that scientists are particularly uh, pure. Quite the contrary. The whole point of science mm. is you don't trust you don't trust each other if you're scientists. Yeah, you, you have to prove it in uh, data. You got the articles have to be peer reviewed. The studies have to be double blind. Um, so it's by no means a uh, deification of scientists. Mm-hmm. But there is, I think, something that, that uh, to be praised about understanding how the world works rather than being stuck in, in superstition and ignorance. And, and I argue that this should be part of the aspirational statement of a university, that understanding what makes the world tick is inherently noble and worthy. Mm-hmm. You know, you suggest in, in the book that authoritarianism, uh, authoritarian populism is an obstacle to uh, continuing progress. Um, how can this uh, authoritarian populism survive in the face of the material progress um, that that uh, has, in fact, occurred? Um, is this the result of declining economy here? Um, the of just Trump voters have a uh, a, a problem with um, since they're almost exclusively um, white that it, it's a reflection of the loss of the extent of white privilege in American society and uh, a a rejection of this modernity uh, because of it. It it is some of that. I mean, there there is. A little bit of economics, and that some of the regions of the country that were hardest hit by um, uh, the, the displacements of globalization and automation have pockets of Trump support. But I think you've also put your finger on the fact that a lot of uh, 
support for populist nationalism in the U.S. and in Europe is cultural rather than economic. It's not the poorest people who support supported Donald Trump. In fact, the, the, the lowest two um, fifths of the income distribution uh, favored Clinton over uh, over Trump. There is resentment at uh, um, uh, affirmative action, at um, the uh, kind of repudiation of traditional um, uh, American society or the equivalents in, in European countries. There's also a misperception that uh, that the country is spiraling out of, downward. Um, which, again, paradoxically, even though it feeds the right, it doesn't just come from the right, because a lot of the left has joined in the chorus of, uh, of society being um, a cesspool of racism and inequality and terrorism and crime. And um, Trump himself, in his uh, infamous inaugural speech, in, in his infamous campaign ads, in his rhetoric, emphasized that the country is... Um, uh, is, is a, uh, a mess of, of carnage and um, factories abandoned like tombstones and uh, only I can fix it. And uh, it was not so easy to find a voice on the other side saying, hey, wait a second, record, rates of crime are at record lows, uh, rates of unemployment are actually pretty low, uh, inflation is low. Uh, no one was willing to step forward and uh, oppose this narrative of gloom. And indeed, one of the strongest predictions, uh, predictors of support for Trump, according to the exit polls, was a belief that the country is heading in the wrong direction. Hmm. The, um, I think you say that reliance on belief rather than science is an obstacle uh, to progress. And uh, I think we might see that uh, in the current period in, in the United States. Um, in, in a rather direct way, but you also are saying that acceptance of, of empirical information and its importance is, on a global scale, growing. Can you sort this out for us? Yeah, th there is a, uh, a strange inconsistency, almost like a growth in, in uh, intellectual inequality, that at the, uh, the most sophisticated end of the scale, we have rationality and science and data being applied to areas that used to be guided by gut feelings and intuition and superstition and hunches. We see it in sports, in uh, Moneyball and Sabermetrics, where uh, it's not the richest team that necessarily wins, but now it can be the, the smartest team. We see it in uh, crime control, in programs like New York City's CompStat, which uh, crunches data every day and uh, finds the neighborhoods and even the city blocks that are going up in crime and the police are concentrated there. We see it in evidence-based medicine where a lot of treatments that uh, were, were just applied unthinkingly are now being evaluated in terms of whether they do any good. Uh, we see it in, in evidence-based policy where governments are trying to sort out the, the boondoggles from the programs that actually make people better off. So in, in, in area after area at one end, we're seeing um, more sophisticated analyses. But at the same time, we're seeing conspiracy theories and um, uh, denial of obvious scientific consensus, such as the uh, safety and efficacy of vaccines. And at the, the, uh, the, the part of the paradox is that at the uh, stupid end, it's not so much ignorance, but it's often uh, politicization and demonization. When you have an enemy that you blame for something, then you'll believe anything. And, uh, and when you've got a coalition that you're loyal to, 
And anything you say that just makes your side look noble and pure and good and the other side look stupid and evil, um, you'll accept. So we, and I don't, we haven't yet solved the problem of how to get people to be embarrassed by obvious untruths that they're just mouthing because they, they, they support their own uh, team. But uh, I think that's got to be an, an imperative in our everyday conversation. And hey, no pressure, but shouldn't your book be that? <laughs> no. I mean, well, I, I, I hope guess, so. I don't want to be... I, I well, I guess I, guess I want to say... because One book will accomplish. I know, I'm joking, <laughs> but only half joking. Compliment. But also it seems that um, it could be more of a a Bible of sorts for the secular liberal coalition, as you said in your previous response. Like, do you really want and do you aim in this book to reach across these divides? There's not just one, I know, but certainly they're pretty darn deep. Um, yes, I would like to, to reach across the divide. Um, I know there are some people who would be, who'll be uh, impervious to it. <laughs> but for example, I, I do try to, um, I, I don't adopt a um, identifiable leftist or rightist uh, position or libertarian position. Uh, the book certainly is secular, but uh, I do argue for the potential value of religious institutions as opposed to religious beliefs if those institutions become more humanistic, as many religious denominations have uh, been becoming. Uh, so I, I, I do try to, to um, uh, reach out, although I with the understanding that, that uh, not everyone's going to be convinced. Anything in particular you really want people to chew on, to question, to think about with this book? Yes. Uh, follow the uh, trend lines, not the headlines. Um, <laughs> look at, uh, uh, tr try to gather, to, to look for information about which way the world is heading and not just what happened yesterday. And um, keep in mind our, our, our recent history. I don't mean ancient history. I don't even mean going back to the American Revolution. I just mean like the, the 1980s, uh, 1990s. Uh, we, it tends to be completely obliterated from, from news stories. But uh, for all the problems we have now, we had a lot of problems back then, too. So let's not misremember the, uh, the 60s or the 70s or the 80s as a golden age. There was much higher unemployment, much higher inflation, wars going on around the world, a much higher rate of crime. Uh, to say nothing of uh, much greater discrimination against uh, gay people, no, no awareness of, a little awareness of sexual harassment. Mm. Uh, let's not romanticize the past. That was Steven Pinker, a Harvard University cognitive psychologist, discussing his new book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. Thanks to How on Earth host Susan Moran and KGNU journalist Joel Edison for that interview. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by Shelley Schlender and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Additional contributions from Tom Yulesman and Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional musical offering from Johann Sebastian Bach. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KJNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. <laughs>